Welcome to Hacker in the Fed, presented by Naxo. Naxo is a premier cybersecurity and investigations firm whose mission to fight cybercrime aligns perfectly with Hacker in the Fed's content. On this episode, we interview Greg Van Hooten of Haynes Boons about the SEC's new cybersecurity disclosure rules. Hector and I also discussed the biggest hack over the last few years that has gone unreported. A train hack due to vendor parts pairing, four men having been indicted in an $80 million pig butchering scheme, MongoDB suffers a security breach that has exposed customer data, and we answer listener questions about Flipper Zero, using VPNs at home, and virtual machines. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. That caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Joined as always by Hector Monsegur, my friend and podcast co-host. Hector is a former black hack hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collide in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are things going? Hey, what's up, buddy? I, I would say pretty well, my side. Uh, oh, quick world. energy out, out of the out of the gates. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, listen, I'm trying to be mindful of the neighbors and so on. Oh. No, but all jokes aside, things are going pretty well. By so. Oh, things are going good. Things are going good. What have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Well, it's the end of the year. It's Q4. So for anybody that does pen testing work or offensive work, cyber risk work, you probably know by now that most of your clients probably have saved all of those pesky jobs for the end of the year. We need this done. We've got money. We've got to pay for it now. we got to get it done. <laughs> we got to check this box. we got to check this box. And if we don't, we're not complying. Going into the new year, it's going to cost us a triple or quadruple more in legal fees and having to answer tough questions. So let's call Hector and his team. And I tell you, it's been busy nonstop. How about yourself? How's, how's everything with Naxo over there? Naxo's doing well, doing well. We're, uh, you know, moving along, getting new cases. Uh, redid all, a bunch of our uh, cybersecurity within our closet today. So that, that was Ooh. good to get that done. Um, since the last I spoke to you, I had lunch with a Hacker and the Fed listener. So, no way. Yeah. Joe reached out to me. Joe's a great guy. He reached out and said, hey, if you ever want to grab lunch, let me know. Um, I did a little background check on Joe to make sure he wasn't uh, crazy. Uh, and no, he's a, he's a decent guy, got a good job, got had a good career in history. And so I went over and we met at a pub in the city um, and had a great lunch. It was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed myself. Wow, that's very cool. That is fantastic. I, I wish I would have I went. I think I, that day I was uh, I was just all over the place at work, but... Yeah, it was it was fantastic. So yeah, no, uh, that, you can have uh, you can have lunch with the next listener. There you go. I'm, I'm with it. Since the last I spoke to you, my daughter started driving on the the roads legally, so she got her permit. So that's pretty exciting news for us. Very cool. Do you feel old, bro? Like, come on, that's that's a pretty big move. You know, I felt old for years. I've been telling you for years. <laughs> I feel old. So I'm 45 this year. I'm going to be 46 this next year, two, 2024. So. Are you going to be ready to make your prediction for what the big 
cyber news of 24 is going to be? I'm ready to be wrong for the next year as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 23 didn't seem to be the insider. So, but we'll on the next episode, we'll make a prediction. And so people start sending some uh, emails to us at questions at a hacker in the Fed. Tell us what your predictions for 2024 is. And that's what we'll talk about in our first episode in, in 2024. What, what we all think is going to be. I, and I, you know, we talked about it in the last episode. I really do. I mean, nothing really changed. 2023 was the year of ransomware. Makes you wonder, what's the limit? Where, you know, when do they stop? You know, when do these guys get together and say, well, we've made a couple billion dollars this year. When, uh, you know, when do we retire, right? Or when do we turn this into uh, it's all positive? But no, it's, it's still going. There were more ransom reported, sorry, reported ransomware attacks in September of 23 than all of 2022. Wow, look at yeah, that. Huh? That's that's the increase we're seeing. So, and you know, we've talked about it. we talked about it a lot in the episode, last episode. It was, you know, the the biggest thing you can see is, you know, the, they're all the money to be made. You know, I think there's a, you know, a, a nine-figure ransom being paid out. I don't know if it's public information yet, but but I think you know, we're MGM was 100 they reported it would be 150 million dollars in losses. Now they didn't pay, but but some ransomware group just got paid, you know, $100 million for a ransom. And, you know, those groups go a long ways of hiring talent, you know, people that can find exploits, people that can, can get in and go lateral through these networks, and, you know, also paying for the zero days. Um, you know, you're, they're outbidding, you know, federal governments. So, Which is the weird part, because, you know, as you know, I've been very, like, vocal against the weaponization of exploits and markets, marketplaces. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. Governments around the world use these marketplaces and these these platforms for buying and trading and selling exploits back and forth. It's been something, it's not new, it's been around for a while. I never really liked it because I, the way I see it is, it, it, all it's going to take is one rogue actor within any of those governments to leak that exploit or whatever, what have you, right? But now we're in a place, we're in a space and time where a ransomware operator, which is probably a 20-something-year-old kid from somewhere in Eastern Europe that is outbidding, <laughs> outbidding actual governments when it comes to exploits uh, purchases. And so, you know, how do you deal with that? So as a government, do you just start offering more money for exploits? What's the limit? Where is the ceiling? Yeah, I, and since our last episodes, I've had quite a few conversations with different lawyers and different organizations and that sort of thing about, you know, we talked about how North Carolina and Florida have now made it illegal for those municipalities, the local, you know, law enforcement and all the different, you know, local governments to pay ransomware anymore. And it's really is a mixed bag of uh, people's whether they think this is going to be beneficial or not. I, I don't see it as a bad thing. I think it might take a little bit of time, but again, I these guys are all about money and it's just going going to, you know, they're going to move on. If they know they're not going to get paid, it's not worth putting the effort in. Yeah. Well, unless we're in a real, you know, kinetic world, like world war scenario. That's the thing I'm looking at, right? I'm looking at, all right, we see what's happening in Yemen now, right? With uh, the Houthi and, and the United States, well, you know, Navy kind of going back and forth a bit. We see what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. We see what's happening in, in China uh, with Taiwan. And you see all these little things. Little things happening all across the world. And you're like, well, okay. So while while all the politics play a role and people are, you know, on the news, talking their talking points and all that, you have these ransomware groups that are just accumulating exploits, capabilities, technologies. They're probably compromising corporate networks. I saw uh, an alert from the FBI not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago maybe, where they said that China has infiltrated 
you know, elements of, of U.S. critical infrastructure, right? During all this chaos, during all this malarkey. And so I'm sitting here like, okay, well, if there is a, like a world conflict, these ransomware guys are already ahead, or, you know, at least from what I can see. And I, I don't know what the government has, but, you know, if you have these, these bad actors like accumulating money and accumulating exploits, uh, you can only imagine that in a situation like that, they're just going to wild out. They're just going to go out um, and just start taking things down offline. The world economy is going to take a, a massive hit anyway. So the price of Bitcoin is even, is even going to matter to some of those people. But they have so much power now. And that's what's scary to me. But you know what else is scarier, Chris? That when it comes out to like governments, they tend to focus on the problem in a way that seems illogical. And in many cases, they might go after the low-hanging fruit. And in this storyline, I feel like the low-hanging fruit is the security researcher. My fear would be that some of these governments are going to start to target security researchers rather than say, you know what, let's enforce a rule across all 50 states, here in the U.S. at least, where it is illegal for you to pay a ransom, right? Starting with... uh, uh, law enforcement starting with, you know, government agencies. Well, instead of going that route, the easier route is to say, you know what, just like what Sony did back with Geohot in the, you know, early 2000s. Let's be upset with the researcher who found the exploit on PlayStation and let's just sue him into oblivion and see what happens. Is that going to deter exploits against Sony? No, it didn't. In fact, you remember in the 50 Days of Laws, there was a whole bunch of compromises against Sony during that time period. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think it increased, you know, Sony doing that increased them as a target. Um, exponentially. Yeah, but I, a lot of people are saying that these Florida and North Carolina municipalities are going to be exponentially increased because uh, uh, the target they're putting on them. I don't know. I just disagree because the difference being, you know, we're talking about the 50 day of lulls was a mentality. Um, you know, it wasn't financially driven. These ransomware groups are financially driven. And, and and that's just what's going the 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 goal now you know hacking isn't sort of you know for the lulls like it used to be and it's for the, for the money. Oh yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent, dude. I, I get that, and you know, it's just weird because you see, like you know, as much as uh, you know, I, I wanted to tolerate like American politics or politics in general, I wanted to just, just deal with it. You know, I felt like there's so much so much that we could be doing right now in terms of policy developing. Uh, development of policies rather to improve our situation. I'm really glad that a lot of corporations, you know, sort of working together with the FIDO Alliance, kind of push pass keys and push security keys. Um, but it seems like pass keys are pr- is probably going to win over security keys. It's good to see that. Then we saw the executive summary coming out of the White House for AI, and that was kind of like a. That's where we got. Yeah, if you actually got to read it, Chris, it's kind of like bonkers a little bit. It, it um, didn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't. It didn't flow. It wasn't an easy read. I'll say that. Exactly right. <laughs> I think President Biden actually wrote the executive summary. But yeah, the, my point here, aside from a nice, you know, uh, Monday night rant, is that there's a lot of other issues that we have to deal with. Um, and I'm hoping that we start to tackle those issues in the 2024. This goes not only for the United States, but for the rest of the world. I'm sure each of you listening from outside of, of the U.S., you guys are having your own uh, security policy issues. Uh, and that are probably not being addressed by governments. So I think, you know, what we probably have to do is be more vocal about it. We just have to have these conversations a bit more and say, look, you know, the last two, three decades of 
of technology. Implementation of deployment has been fantastic, but the consequences, every day we're getting hacked. Every day our personal information is getting compromised and breached. At this point, Chris, you know what I've accepted? I've accepted that all my information is sitting in someone's hard drive. I'm sure you have as well. Oh, not someone's. A uh, hundred different people. Oh, yeah. And they could, dock, they could dox us at any moment. They could go through our phone records at any moment. They have so much access to our personal lives, not because they're super hackers, but because the organizations that we've entrusted with our personal information have not kept up the bargain, uh, or their side of the bargain when it comes down to trust, privacy, and security. Well, yeah, either it's been stolen from them or they've made good money selling our information to these data, <laughs> data ag- aggregators that we've talked about for years. Oh, yeah. So now my question for you is, who's worse, the hacker or the data aggregator? <laughs> I think it's the data aggregator, to be honest with you, but <laughs> we'll see. So uh, the, our banter section really got really sad there. Really, we tried to scare people there. So let's move <laughs> on back. to our first story, Hector. The biggest hack over the last few years has gone unreported. So there's a great guy on Twitter, uh, goes, he, well, sorry, excuse me, Elon, on X, uh, at the handle at Matty J, M-A-T-T-J-A-Y, a uh, guy, guy named Matt Johannesson. And he reported that the Chinese hacking group compromised a $57 billion chip manufacturer, NXP, in 2017. So NXP is the second largest semiconductor company in the EU. Um, their chips are used in iPhones and Apple Watches, and they are used for NFC, or near-field communication chips, that support Apple Pay. Kind of scary stuff, Hector, and no one's heard about this. And this happened in 2017. No one has reported on it, and I wonder why. Yeah, well, think about it like this, right? So when you have a massive corporation like this, they're so large in terms of attack posture, rather attack surface, that their attack posture or their security posture is likely going to be weak, okay? And I've had conversations with a, with a ton of clients uh, in a Fortune 50 or a Fortune 100 or the world's, you know, whatever, uh, top list that have these massive infrastructures, you know, 100,000 employees or some ridiculous number like that, uh, 50,000 internal systems, uh, a bunch of Active Directory and subdomains and, and forests. Uh, you have all this infrastructure, and it's almost impossible to secure all of that in a way that's timely. Okay, doing massive migrations would take them, you know, months or maybe a year of planning before they could actually move forward with that deployment. And that's a lot of time in between your last patch cycle and your compromise. So. You have a company of this size. They're breached. They're aware of the breach at some point. And, you know, not putting words in their mouths, but it almost seems like they're like, eh, you know, what are, what are hackers going to do with our IP? What, what can they really do with that? And so it's a tough situation because I've seen this also with, like, the Sony Aramco, the hack that happened a couple of years ago. That was another hack that cost, you know, $2, 3000000000 billion, Chris. Uh, the, the adversaries got in. They started destroying equipment. And Saudi Aramco just hired people to rebuild the infrastructure. Is that the only response that these massive companies could, could muster when it comes to these breaches? I don't know. I don't know if they could have done better. But this was a hell of a hack. It was. So it was done by the Chinese hacking group called Chimera. Uh, they have, the Chimera's got a long history of going after semiconductor companies to steal chip designs and IP. 
Um, so within the uh, NXP hack, so the initial compromise was done through stolen credentials that worked on their VPN. You know, this will sound familiar now, but remember, this is happening in 2017. Um, the credentials were generated from breaches of Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, so they, they, they popped them and the same credentials that worked for, you know, a LinkedIn profile for NXP also worked for logging into the VPN. Then they bypassed MFA with SimSwap. Um, because the MFA was MSN token-based, and they also changed the phone numbers on the account. So the new tokens would come in, they'd just go straight to their phone. Um, they were inside the, the corporate network for two and a half years, um, and according to the leaked logs that, that came out of this thing, hackers came back every few weeks to see whether the new data had been found and whether new accounts had been opened up and part of the network they could hack. They could find more user accounts. So that gives me a clue that... They didn't have access to everything at first. Um, they just waited, waited for the accounts they had access to to expand and get more privileges, then also looking for other accounts within the system to, you know, laterally move to the system and get more and more compromises. So the hacking group wasn't uncovered until they were detected in a separate company that connected back to NXP systems. Wow. Yeah. So they weren't that. even monitoring that well. I mean, we hear that a lot, and I've seen that a lot in, in some of these big clients. Because I said, like, like I said before, they have massive infrastructure. Chris, you know this because you've worked with some of these companies as well, and you know, you see some of their some of their setups. When I hear something like, you know, the attackers will come in and check every few weeks to monitor for new data or new users, I'm also thinking about long term persistence. If if the company just hired a new like senior technologist of some sort, right? An engineer of something or another. You know that guy's going to be there for the next five years. You know, hopefully he doesn't, you know, uh, uh, rotate his passwords often. So this guy is going to be, you know, part of your long-term persistence plan, which is I'm going to compromise this guy's account. I'm going to sit on it as long as I can because even if we get kicked out of NXP, you know, NXP probably thinks, well, this guy, we just hired him two weeks ago. Like, there's no way he's compromised. Yeah, right. His password is breached. And you know, he'll probably be another entry point into the organization, right? So that's, I'll give the audience a flip side of what I think when I, when I hear that. But yeah, you know, it, it's it's tough for these big organizations. I actually I actually uh, have spent a lot of time, especially more recently with w one of the big companies in the, on this planet and just kind of dealing with the security program and, and you know, kind of uh, working with their CISO and the CIO. And the one thing I learned is that it's not necessarily, and this is not all the cases, right? You always hear, uh, we heard recently of a case with the SEC suing a company because their CISO, uh, you know, may have been negligent. Solar Winds, uh, yeah, yeah. Solar Tim, Winds, Tim right. Brown, the CISO over there, is getting part of the wrapped up in the charges. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And so these guys were concerned, like, hey, dude, like we're this is such a massive network. We're doing our best, and I got to see that. I'm like, okay, well, let's look, let's 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 focus step by step, and let's figure out what your risk tolerance is. You know, let's talk about prioritization, right? Let's do some. Let's let's do let's have some discussions with your department leads. We're not going to be able to fix this this security posture issue today, but you know what? Over the course of the next two quarters, I guarantee you, uh, we could tighten your controls and improve the situation. You know than what it is today, right? A lot of companies this size also invest heavily on the external, but the internal are usually just completely open to attacks, right? So yeah. There's a food for thought for the audience. It's what I'm seeing on my side of the world, uh, in my side of the space. Yeah, 
I wouldn't be surprised if there's more NXPs out there as we speak. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned a comment a few minutes ago about the company just saying, eh. and that's sort of what NXP did. You know, they, they didn't disclose the information because they found the attack um, to cause, quote unquote, no material damage. So I'm not really quite sure how they can do that. You know, I've been working in this space long enough. You know, I didn't do national security, but I, I worked on a few of the national security cases to see how they worked. And these guys being in the network for two and a half years, you know, they at least had access to, you know, look to see how the chips work. Um, they got their IP. Um, you know, that's really, you know, back in the early 2010s, to, you know, 2010, 2015, the Chinese really wanted all the IP because how much money? It saves billions and billions of dollars in R&D. Yeah. So, you know, I worked for a an oil and gas company, and they got hacked into a bunch of times because, you know, they didn't want to pay for the technology of, you know, what, you know, certain different piping systems worked on the seafloor. I mean, that's very expensive to test and develop pipes that work work 100% of the time, you know, under thousands of pounds of pressure at the bottom of the seafloor. And so, you know, NXP is kind of naive here to say that there was no material damage. I don't think they've done a full, you know, or at least nothing's come out. And again, no one's reported on any of this. Maybe they implemented backdoors into this this software, into the chips design. Um, you know, I, I I've seen it before in in government stuff where a piece of hardware comes in and it it doesn't meet the the there's an extra chip sitting there. So you know what happens then? You know, but now we're looking inside the chips. These guys had two and a half years of of at least looking. Who knows what they had for influence? Yeah, no, you're 100 percent right, brother. And I I think that that's going to be the big. Here for a lot of these massive corporations, right? Uh, in fact, I think I read an article on this exact topic. Someone had correlated the the SolarWinds hack to Enron, and they they, they were basically saying like this SolarWinds hack is kind of like our Enron of the time because it is a is a reality check that a lot of organizations have not had to deal with. Cyber insurance, yeah, it came out to some some pretty pennies, but you know, how do you deal with now? And I'm looking at the NXP stock. They do have uh, a ticker. If this would have happened, if this breach would have happened this year, 2023, they've likely would have had the SEC on their asses right now. Assuming that that, that leak that happened would have happened like, you know, let's say a couple months ago after the SEC put in the rules that publicly traded companies have four days for breach notification. That has started... Uh... Today, today, as we record this, uh, a couple days ago, as this goes goes out to the people, so fun times. It's gonna be a crazy year for you CISOs out there. I hope uh, if there's any CISOs or CIOs listening, uh, good luck, fellas yeah. and ladies. Yeah, we didn't cover it, but the uh, but there's there's other rules and regulations coming out in 2024 that we'll talk about uh, coming up. That that just it's gonna be tough in the cybersecurity. So we'll see, but. The next one you sent over is actually kind of funny because you sent me this story and then like four or five days later, the listener that I had lunch with, Joe, he sent this to me and said it was something exactly that Hector read up his uh, his alley on this one. <laughs> no way. So, yeah. So he was he was pretty – I replied back within seconds like, Joe, we're definitely doing this one on the show on our next show. So he was pretty happy about that. But so a train hack due to a vendor geofencing features. So a group of – Guys in Poland were hired to come in, and they reverse-engineered code on uh, the electric trains over there and found that the Poland trains were locked for arbitrary reasons after being serviced by a third-party workshop. And then so the manufacturer of the train argued that it was because of malpractice at the workshops and said the trains should be serviced by the manufacturer 
instead of third parties. So these guys made trains, made specialized software on the train, and made it so if you got your train worked on anywhere else but for them, it stopped the train. The train just stopped working. That is insane. Yeah. That is ridiculous and should not be acceptable by anyone. What, just in trains or in anything? No. Well, look, look, I am for being able to repair something that I purchased. If I purchase a laptop and the keyboard gets messed up, I don't want to pay for Apple Care and I don't want to send it back to Apple and spend money to get it fixed, even if it's free. It's my laptop. I purchased it. It's my money. It's my property. So they call that parts pairing is, I guess, the terminology, and that's an, the anti-repair mechanism. Um, exactly. And you bring up a good one. Apple, for years, has been saying that only Apple should be able to repair Apple devices. That's not fair. Not everybody could afford Apple Care. I'm not sure how much Apple Care is across the planet. I'm sure in other places in the world it's cheaper. Over here it's like what one one ninety nine a year or three ninety nine for like a full service. Uh, no, 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 no. If I if I if I already coughed up the money to buy the laptop, it is my laptop. If I want to replace the the keyboard or add memory, that shouldn't have to void my warranty. And the situation in Poland. A big shout out. Big clap to the Polish researchers out there. I've been saying it for years. Polish hackers are legit. Uh, for them to identify, uh, to, to, to classify, to validate their findings. Uh, and then, of course, to fix the issue that was implemented by the manufacturer. Uh, big shout out to them. But it's scary because, Chris, not to be not to be the fun guy, not to, not to cause <laughs> fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? But what if there was an actual like world war scenario and you have these trains that you have to move and those the manufacturers compromise or the manufacturer jumps sides and now they're geofencing your trains stuck, blocking ports, blocking uh, the capability for logistics to travel, uh, to move around. What then? Are we really going to allow you know, a manufacturer of a product uh, to have that much power within our country? That's insane. So let me ask you this. Let me ask if you if it knows before you purchase it. So obviously these trains were bought and they contain logic that would lock up the trains with bogus errors after either some date or if the train wasn't running for a given amount of time, it would just lock it up. And uh, they even actually put in part of the GPS the coordinates for like third party vendors. If they found those trains were at those workshops within those GPS coordinates, it would lock the train up. Um, but then these guys, these Polish hackers, and again, kudos to them, they, they found that if you did some, you know, weird combination of pressing different keys within the cabin in a certain order, uh, that it would unlock it. But let me ask you, so if you knew the train came with this, would it be okay? If you knew that you, when you bought a car, it had to be serviced only at that car dealership. Um, if you knew you bought an iPhone and it only Apple could work on it, you know, is that fair? Or is it only because this was unreported and undocumented that makes it unfair in your mind? Well, I would like at least the option to know, right? I would love to, first off, know that this is a thing. That's one, okay? Two, I would love, I would love to have some sort of mechanism, whether it's a physical key, something, that would allow me to, to circumvent this. Is my uh, a property. I've purchased this. I'm not sure how the trade system works in, in Poland. And I would love for an audience member to jump in here on this conversation. But I would assume the government has some sort of, uh, you know, say in this. If, if like, the Polish government or the agency running, you know, the trains out there knew that there was, like, a DRM feature to this, uh, to, the, to these trains, uh, one, what were they thinking purchasing them? And two, 
did they have enough information to kind of assess whether or not this would be a problem at some point? But I would like to know. And I would like some sort of mechanism that I could, at the very least, physically make a change. And if not, no, I wouldn't purchase this. Absolutely not. I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit torn on it. I sort of, of this, the secretive stuff, no, that's bullshit. But like, I run internet, I run Starlink. And I know, and they told me before I bought it, well, you have to tell us what address you're going to be at because you're geofenced to that. And I was like, well, that, that's fine. I know if I keep it at my house. Because then they came out with a more expensive feature later on where you could drive around and not have it geofenced. And, and geofence just means that you're locked to a certain geographical area. Um, and so, like, I can't take the unit I have and leave my my house with it. Um, and, but I understood that when I bought it. It wasn't a secret. So I, I'm not that upset by it. But, you know, it's it's a feature that, that you pay more to have. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, with the trains, I disagree that just because somebody else works on your train, it should get locked up. I will say there has been an update since this story you first sent it over to me that now the manufacturer is denying they, they, they bricked any of the trains and they're also now going to sue the security engineers. So really the way it ha happened is this, the third party, this, there's a, a third party repair company, SPS. Um, they found these mysterious errors while they were trying to repair the trains, uh, couldn't figure it out. And then they used a powerful tool called Google and they simply <laughs> Googled Polish hackers. Uh, and they came across the group called uh, dragon sector. Now that's pretty close to my fictitious hacking group, dragon samurai. Um, yeah. but, but not exactly. And I have to very say, close. yes, yes. I have to say that Joe, Joe did find that connection where dragon sector was very close <laughs> to mine. And so, you know, the manufacturer is now saying that the hacking, the ITs is a violation of meddling legal provisions and threatened to railway traffic safety. The name, the number of things that are done in the name of safety is blows my mind. So they're saying that they can brick a whole entire train system, uh, be you know, out of safety uh, because somebody, if somebody else, is, I'm the only one good enough to fix it. Somebody else can't do it. That's crazy to me. That is insane. But you know, again, it it reminds me of the whole like the, the farmers or the John Deere situation. They've been going to battle for years. Uh, this is nothing new. At least here in the U.S., we've been dealing with this problem uh, where you have these manufacturers who are massive who know that you need their product or they offer you an, enough of a discount that they know that you're going to purchase their product. And then when it's time for that product to fall apart, because eventually machines do fall apart, they do need repairs. Uh, you know, you have a mechanic that lives on a farm with his father and he, he says, look, I can fix that, Pops. Uh, the moment he does that, warranty is voided. They're, they're not going to get any assistance, no help. They can't purchase the, the, the individual parts that they need to fix the original problem. And they probably don't want to spend the money to send off the uh, or ship off the the equipment to get serviced. It's just an argument that we shouldn't be having in 2023, at least in my opinion. I think like we should have been beyond this already. Yeah, and again, I'm not I'm not going after Elon here. Again, I'm a customer. I use uh, I use his his Starlink, uh, but I looked into the Tesla power walls and seeing how you know have backup power in the house and all that. Um, but those things are so connected to phone home. Like if it loses connection to back to home base, wherever that may be with Tesla, um, for a certain amount of time, they just shut down. So they could be fully charged and fully going. But if they, if they don't talk back for a certain amount of time, um, which I don't understand, because if I don't have power, I might not have internet service. I'm not going to have, but 
it's a whole big fiasco. So that that's why I've sort of stayed away from. It. Maybe it's changed since last I looked into it. And Elon, feel free to write into us at questions at hacking the Fed and let us know about that calling home function. But but you know, at least I knew about it before I purchased it. If I was to purchase something like that and then not know about that, I couldn't you know just have a standalone. You know, again, I'm not a, a prepper. I'm not living off the grid, but. I don't want my power wall calling have to you know have to call back. I, I, I don't know. It just feels weird to me. So I looked a little bit further into it, and so there is a thing called the DCMA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, there's a section uh, 1201, and this is a law in the U.S. And this would protect the the these uh, security engineers from you know hack the the hack back into to repair that the. Repair pros are allowed to hack, and it would cover trains. Wow. But in the European Union, they may not be covered. This may be a violation. Wow, this was a good find, man. Good, good job. So we'll we'll see how it goes, and keep you guys updated on it. But again, you know, I, good on these guys finding this, fixing it, and kind of making it uh, the out there. But you know, they they might fa- face some uh, legal problems. So sure. Well, I wish them the best of luck and a big shout out to all the researchers out there in the world doing the right thing. These guys, obviously, uh, you know, they did their, they did their, their their homework, they did their work, the research. I'm glad they found this. It is a great topic of discussion because, you know, like we said earlier, we don't we run into these same problems here in the United States. Uh, but again, big shout out to Chris. This is some homework right here. Some good research. An exemption to Section 1201 of DMCA. Very cool. So. Speaking, do you remember our conversation uh, with Erin West and we talked about pig butchering? She's a prosecutor out in California that is really kind of leading the forefront on pig butchering. Absolutely. She was awesome. One of the best episodes we ever did. Yes. Well, good on uh, what's going on. And four men were indicted in an $80 million pig butchering scheme. And for those that maybe missed the Erin West episode, pig butchering is comes from the Chinese phrase, Shao Zupan. Um, and it's an increasingly... It's a, it's a victim fraud where they go after through like cold messaging victims and they sort of build a rapport. It's sort of like a love scam um, some points. And they get the people more confidence, more confidence. They teach them how to work in crypto and then they end up stealing their money. So four people, four uh, U.S. nationals have been arrested. This is a scam that costs U.S. citizens hundreds of million dollars every year and keeps growing. Apparently, we're caught because they were laundering their illicit proceeds through American banks. Um, and the defendants use shell companies registered in California to funnel their profits to domestic and international bank accounts. So two are arrested and two have not been arrested yet, um, but I'm sure they will be soon. And they're all California residents. Here, here I'm thinking. Well, one's Illinois. Are- Three California, one Illinois. Wow, look at that. And here, here I was thinking that these, these actors were probably going to be somewhere in Hong Kong or somewhere in China. You know, scamming people, collecting the money, and enjoying their, you know, uh, enjoying their 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 uh, their donations back up to the you know to the Chinese government. But no, these guys were here, like they were in the United States, scamming fellow residents. Oh, these guys—they're going to get blazed. Yeah, this isn't going to go well. I hopefully, you know, the, the, there's no jury trial that's going to be good for them. The jury's not going to have compassion on what they're doing. And, and they're victims, uh, the parade of victims that they're going after. Normally, it's like, a you know, a, a, an older person, possibly someone who's recently been widowed and, you know, a little, you know, you know, open and susceptible to, you know, having some company or someone to talk to. Um, it's just, it's terrible. It's a terrible scam. It's a terrible trend what's going on. Your heart goes out to some of these victims. 
absolutely. There was one victim I spoke to recently because she hit us up after the show. And uh, very nice lady. Actually, you know, not an older person. She was a student. She was really? a student. Wanted to, yeah, she wanted to make some couple extra bucks. She got a message, you know, from one of these guys. Not these guys, but, you know, one of these guys uh, into the scam, into, the, into that whole ecosystem. And they're like, hey, listen, you know, we got some crypto stuff happening. You could invest small. Then, you know, if you like it, you know, you like the, the results, you could just jump in. And she fell for it, you know. And it's, it's such a sad reality when, you know, you're putting like your whatever's left that you have stored in the bank after paying for school. And, uh, you know, it's gone. That South Park meme with the banks, you know, now it's gone. Right. I felt bad because I didn't really have much to tell her aside from, hey, maybe check, maybe send a message to Aaron West. Speak, speak to the to law enforcement in your state. But in terms of getting this money, I'm not sure we could ever get that money back. It's going to have to, you know, we're going to see how much the, the government can claw back on this. You know, they, the, the money went to accounts in Hong Kong and the Bahamas, but the U.S. has already started getting some of the some money back through Tether, through freezing assets that way. So hopefully some of these victims can get their money back. But yeah, I'm the same as you. I was contacted by a girl in South Carolina. She lost $34,000 over a couple months. Um, and then I just did a speech this last week. And, uh, you know, someone I mentioned Aaron West in the speech and someone came up later after the speech and told me that they had a friend that lost six hundred eighty thousand dollars to these guys. So life savings, you work your whole life and you think you put away and, you know, save for your retirement so you can enjoy yourself. And then, you know, you fall for a scam like this. So, guys, just be careful out there. You know, you understand what you're doing and, and that there's people trying to target you uh, through through these cyber crimes. You know, what's crazy. Like I sit here, I listen to these stories. You know, you know me. I, you know how I feel about like these bad actors now, uh, especially like, these ransomware groups that are targeting hospitals and stuff like that. I, I, I really have disdain for them. But then I see a story like this, and I'm like, wow, these guys are even worse. These guys are even worse than like, you know, these groups that target like hospitals. Like they're just at the bottom of the barrel, and they're successful at it, which is crazy. I don't know if I can say worse, but they're definitely they're, they're together as scum of the fucking earth. So. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, so I, yeah, you know, going after somebody and just, just destroying them. I mean, can you imagine you've worked and you're retired and then now you have to go back to work because someone stole all your money from you um, just to survive? So, Hector, the, the last story is, you know, a hot one that's kind of going, happening as we're talking, as we're going into this, but it's, you know, we, we probably should hit it that uh, MongoDB has disclosed that it's actively investigating a security instance that has led to unauthorized access to quote unquote certain corporate systems. Um, have you ever used MongoDB? Of course, yeah. I use MongoDB for uh, proof of concept projects. I'm developing a platform for something right now that uses MongoDB. Can you tell the audience sort of what it is, what MongoDB is and what it's used for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is essentially a like a NoSQL database platform. Uh, SQL, by the way, uh, stands for Structured Query Language. It allows you to query a bunch of data that's stored um, in, in what they call a database. And a database is basically, uh, it could be a file, uh, it could be in memory, and it could just have a whole bunch of data that's structured. So using SQL, you'll be able to kind of query that data and say, hey, um, in the last 500 entries that I added to this data set or database, I need the data that was published or authored by this column. And that column could be an author ID or an author name, right? So that's a very rough example. But for those of you that, that understand SQL, uh, SQL at some point, 
uh, especially with DBAs out there, you guys have experience with things like MS SQL, MySQL, Postgres, right? You may have experience with like Oracle database, but where Mongo differs is that it doesn't need this massive, uh, heavy on memory or heavy on resources infrastructure. You know, it's classified as a NoSQL database, meaning that it stores data in a way that's not necessarily structured, but it's still in some ways queryable. You can still query data based off of an identifier or based off of some other variable. Uh, but it's not the same as like the databases I just mentioned, like MS SQL, Postgres, etc. It works very well. I've I've used like NoSQL type databases for quite some time for small projects. For some of you developers, you might even know like SQLite. SQLite is a great alternative. It's not NoSQL, obviously, but it, it's file based. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. It is basically a database, uh, uh, you know, a framework for users to to store data and in some cases query it. So, Hector, like I said, you know, there's not a lot of information out there, but what we are hearing is that um, they've said uh, this unauthorized access has been going on for some period of time before it was discovered, uh, and MongoDB is experiencing an elevated login attempts um, that are causing issues for customers attempting to log into the Atlas and a support portal. Um, that, and again, Mongo is now recommending that all customers uh, be on the lookout for social engineering, phishing attacks, and enforce phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, as well as uh, rotate their MongoDB Atlas passwords. But to be clear, they have not seen any indication of any security vulnerabilities in the MongoDB product in a, any MongoDB products as a result of the incident. And it's important to note that MongoDB Atlas clusters access is authenticated via a separate system from MongoDB corporate systems. And they have no ev evidence that the Atlas clusters have seen any sort of compromise. So that's really all we're hearing, but it's going. I think this is gonna be a big one. You're gonna think if people had access to MongoDB and there's a large amounts of files stored in corporations, we're gonna see that, that you know, for the next six months to a year, uh, people have stolen quite a bit of customer data through this breach. Think about it like this. You are a startup, you just got funded, you signed up for Mongo's, uh, MongoDB's online or cloud-hosted uh, platform, and you know now your credentials are some, sitting somewhere. We don't know the extent of this this breach. We don't have no idea if they were able to access uh, customers' data aside from like maybe credentials, maybe some information, login information, emails, right? Uh, and I'm sure we'll find out more as time goes on. But yes, yeah, interesting to see how one the attacker got in. And compromised Atlas cluster, and two, you know, what's the extent of the damage, right? I would love to hear both both of those answers. Yeah, I think we're going to see some over the next, like I said, like next year, we're going to see that, you know, this was done by some one of the ransomware groups or something like that, and they got, you know, in order to steal customer data or, uh, along those lines. So we'll see what happens. But Hector, we got a lot of questions in from from our listeners. And let's go through and try to answer some questions. If you guys uh, want to reach out to us, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. You know, same email address that Elon's going to write into us at, you know, questions at hackerinthefed.com. First one, Hector, is from Nate. And Nate said, recently I've been trying to switch careers and get into cyber. My goal is to be a pen tester someday. So I bought a Flipper Zero just for fun to learn more about hacking with physical tools. My question is for both of you. Hector, what do you think about a Flipper Zero and would you ever use it for a red team or would you have used it when you were in the hands of Sabu? 
And for Chris, what do you think about the device? And what does the FBI police think about these devices being so easy for the general public to attain? Thanks so much. And I love the show. So you go first, Hector. What do you think of a Flipper Zero? And do you think Sabu would ever have used it? I love this question. So big shout out to you. Big shout out to you, Nate. Really, really appreciate you. Yes. So Flipper Zero is a very cool. I have several. For those that don't know, kind of describe what it is, Hector. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. So, so Flipper Zero is uh, it's a little physical tool. It's a, a little physical device that you could use to automate certain actions. I'll give you an example. There was an attack many, many years ago, like towards the beginning of the Ring's uh, uh, public exposure, where people started buying the product a lot, where if you could uh, flood the local area, as in like the, the physical area to the device, with uh, with Wi-Fi authentication or real authentication packets, then you could take the device, quote unquote, offline and separate it from the Wi-Fi network. Okay, that's called a Wi-Fi DDoS attack, and it's actually uh, pretty successful with a lot of products that use Wi-Fi for intercommunication. So something with a, like a Flipper Zero, you could automate that attack. If you would try to order, if you try to do that attack and automate it without a Flipper Zero, you would probably need a laptop. You will probably need to have a laptop that has a decent battery source so you could make it to the location and do the attack without the laptop dying. Let me just point out that this device is not a, a buy it and now you're a hacker device. That's not what it is for. Uh, it does require some learning. It does require custom firmware. Um, yes, there's a whole bunch of different custom firmware for different attacks, but you have to manually configure it. You have to manually set it up. It's not point and click. Uh, so I just want the audience to be aware that, yes, a Flipper Zero can be used to automate various attacks, like opening up a garage door, a Wi-Fi DOF. In fact, I've used a Flipper Zero on a physical engagement with a robot that I had to engage for a customer. And what the robot utilized was a sort of kiosk. So we used the Flipper Zero to automate keystrokes to the kiosk to try to break out of the kiosk mode, Right. So it works very well. Would Sabu have used it during the Sabu era? Yes, because Sabu during that era was a kid, right? Young guy. <laughs> he probably would have been like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Let me see if I can open up an ATM or something. Yeah, but you and I would have done that together because we both thought I would have thought it was cool. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, But, yeah, I, I, I definitely love the product. Big shout out to the guys who developed it. It's not going to make you a hacker, though. Just a heads up. Yeah, no, I agree completely agree with Hector. Um, I think the FBI and the police probably are a little scared of it because they don't quite understand what Hector just said. That it's not they think they see it in the news as a device as like, oh, this uses is a tool for hacking. You can just get it and hack into things. That's not right, Trey. It's like getting a lock picking set. I mean, okay, you have the tools to do to open a lock, but you still need a skill set in order to use those tools to do something with it. Um, you know, it, it does make it a little easier, like Hector said, but again, you need a skill set. So, you know, I think they're fun. They're, they're, they, you know, uh, would I recommend parents get one for their kids, like for Christmas, understanding that, you know, it could be used for bad things. Um, you're, you're opening up sort of a can of wor worms with it, but you know, if you got a good kid who's not going to use it for bad things, you know, I think it's an all right device to have. The next question, Hector, is from Brian. Hello, Chris and Hector. Thanks again for all you do. Hector explained that you shouldn't use a VPN for personal use on a home network, but what about using a VPN to hide my internet track from my ISP? Not that I'm doing anything nefarious, but don't like the idea of them selling off traffic data. If we shouldn't use a VPN at home, 
what are some other techniques to secure your home network? I'm currently learning some network security basics. Could you do a little deeper dive into VPN and home network security setup? You guys rock. Again, Hector, I think you've answered this question a, a number of times. I don't think you said don't use a VPN at home. I think you said understand the limitations of what a VPN used at home is. Absolutely. And it seems like he has, uh, uh, Brian has a, a specific case, which is I don't want my ISP to know what it is that I'm doing. Right. Uh, it seems like that's what that's what he brought up here. OK, cool. So at that point, would you use a VPN to mask your traffic from your ISP? Yeah, you can. But now you're trusting another ISP, which is your VPN provider, to do that for you. So you go right back and say, well, Hector, I was looking at uh, VPN auto installers on GitHub and you could you could deploy custom VPNs on the fly on AWS or DigitalOcean for like 10 bucks a month. Absolutely. But now you are entrusting uh, AWS and DigitalOcean with your traffic, right? Someone somewhere is going to see some, some sort of traffic. Not every piece of traffic is going to travel to HTTPS, especially if, you, if you're going through a lot of websites and you're, you know, you're kind of going hard on that. We're not there yet. Eventually, we will. So at that point, yes, you could probably mask some of the traffic. But here's the thing that you're not thinking about. Let's look at China as an example, Okay. China, since, I don't know, since the mid-90s, I could be wrong, they've had something called the Great Firewall of China. I'm sure you're aware of that, Chris, right? Sure. The Great Firewall of China is this massive conglomerate of technologies and, you know, focus on detection and anomaly detection. And now with AI, behavior analytics, and basically it's probably one of the most advanced things on the planet when it comes to detection of traffic. What the Chinese are able to do is, even if you somehow manage to get uh, an encrypted tunnel through China and, and onto the outside world, they may not see what that traffic looks like. Uh, well, they, they might see what it looks like, but they may not see what's inside that traffic because of encryption and other technologies, right? But eventually what they start to do, these, these researchers in China, is they start to figure out that if they have enough data centers around the world, Right, and let's say you go to like a Falun Gong website that's hosted in uh, it was hosted in Hong Kong until the recent takeover, and now it's hosted in Taiwan. Okay, they have enough connections in Taiwan to be able to kind of monitor your traffic without really seeing what it is, but they can kind of guesstimate what it is that you're doing. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but we do that here as well. What? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to break it to you guys. <laughs> But we kind of do that here as well. So for, I'm going to give you guys an example. And this is after extensive talks with like tier one operators, not to mention any names, but here's what, I've, here's what I found. I could be completely wrong. They could have been completely trolling me. But if you are an actor, a bad actor, and you live in California, for example, and you do a breach, and you create a you know beautiful network of encrypted tunnels from here to, uh, let's say, to, to, to Ottawa, and then uh, to your target. And you're transferring about 20 terabytes a night for the next three months, right? Someone somewhere is going to notice this influx of data, and they're going to guesstimate where the data started and where it ended, the source and destination. And they're going to find this one guy in California, this one gal in California, that's been transferring 20 terabytes of data through an encrypted tunnel for the last three months. The point here 
is it depends on your risk tolerance. Why are you trying to masquerade or mask your data from the ISP? If it's because you don't want them to sell your data, I respect that. Feel free to use a VPN. But just remember that whichever provider you go with are probably going to be in the same position as that original ISP. So now the question is, who do you trust more? The ISP that already has a social security number, your credit card details, or the ISP that is a cloud provider and they probably have a privacy policy that they're going to sell your data anyway. So, Hector, the next question comes from Brandon. Brandon says, love the show. I've been listening since day one. I have a question about virtual machines. I know that a tool that can be utilized to harness additional computing power, but it seems to me that using one also expands your attack surface. Brandon's using some of your terms for you, Hector, attack surface. Um, I love it. Brandon. Can you help me quantify this risk? It seems to me that it's hard... If I, that if I had a program that had deemed sensitive or valuable, all else being equal, I'd be better off running on my own device. However, it also seems like I could run it faster on a VM. The performance component of the trade-off is fairly well quantified in the specs that they advertise. However, I would appreciate a more thorough understanding of the risk profile that using a virtual machine exposes me. Thank you for the podcast. All of it is important and your public service. Wonderful. Thank you, Brandon, for that fantastic question. And uh, we appreciate you 100%. So virtual machines are fantastic. They do allow you to segment execution of tools, software. Uh, it allows you to kind of create uh, a separate computing identity, right, in some ways. It's kind of a quick correction to the first line, the first sentence. They don't harness additional comp computational power. They allow you to kind of create kind of like a virtual world or a virtual environment from the computational power that you have right now. So you are going to be splicing into your resources. Just heads up. Just want to make sure the audience also understands that. So remember, Brandon, we've talked about this plenty of times, right? Anytime you add on to your technology portfolio, whether it's a new email address, whether it's signing up for a new website, uh, whether it's adding uh, or buying security keys or adding a VM to your laptop, right? Um, you are indeed expanding your attack surface. And this is why what a lot of people do is they will create a VM or they'll take a laptop, like an old ThinkBook that you can find on eBay for like 200 bucks or less, and they'll install something like a Tails, Tails OS, uh, where Tails OS will virtualize everything. There's something new called Nix OS as well that allows you to kind of create profiles for each individual command you run it kind of segments what those logs and configuration files look like for each command. But it's a complex initial setup and installation. Uh, so I think Tails OS is, is probably more realistic as it's very visually appealing. Um, and as you kind of use this virtual environments for segmentation, you start to improve your security posture for that environment. Okay? But here's the thing. My take is is that if you're going to do something highly sensitive on a VM, you have to remember that if the whole system is compromised, that the VM is compromised, and vice versa. If that VM is compromised, we have seen countless, countless VM-to-host privilege escalation or escapes over the last you know, dozen years. It's not new, right? And attackers are always finding ways to break out of a VM environment to get back to the host. Now, so let's go back to your question. Let's say you're storing, you know, $50 million in Bitcoin on a device. Are you going to set it up with a VM? No. 
I would recommend you go and you buy a laptop, fresh drive, fresh memory, um, you know, have a Trezor as a backup or as your primary, right? Um, then you have this device as, as that base of operations for that specific task. You're probably going to also want to have it disconnected from the internet and maybe even disconnected from your home network, right? But again, it depends on your risk profile. It depends on your risk tolerance. Is it what you're doing with that VM so sensitive that it's worth to you uh, potentially compromising the rest of the host? If so, then by all means, have fun, right? Otherwise, if it's not, then you want to segment even further. I use VMs for research, and I take the risk that maybe one day I'll compromise a VM or it'll lead to a compromise of the VM, and it could possibly go back to the host. But the laptop I use for VMs um, doesn't have anything useful. It might be connected to my local network, but it's not going to ruin my day. So if you want to take all of that that I just gave you and kind of, you know, you know, think it through, sit down, look at your security posture like, uh, like you're like like a like a NFL coach. You want to strategize and implement when necessary, and you make changes to your roster when you have to. And I hope that helps. Hacker in the Fed is happy to be sponsored by Cloud Solvers, the ultimate endpoint security solution. You know how vital endpoint security is, right? It's the first thing you need to worry about when you're hacking or defending against hackers. It's where the action happens 95% of the time. We talk about it every week. That's true, Chris. Endpoint security is essential for any organization that wants to keep its data and systems safe from cyber criminals. The problem is that the organizations are clueless about how to secure their endpoints effectively. They keep buying more and more security tools, but they don't know how to use them properly. They may have universal endpoint management or otherwise UEM platforms like Microsoft Intune, VMware's Workspace ONE, AirWatch, MobileIron, or others, but they don't know how to configure and deploy them for maximum protection and compliance. I see that all the time in my engagements, Chris. I work with clients before or after penetration tests, and we review the technologies they have invested in. Sometimes they have gaps in the security posture, meaning that some of the tools are not working as expected. See that a lot, actually. Back in the day, let's say uh, about 20 years ago, many products were snake oil, and I'm sure many, many of our audience could agree to that, um, or they were not marketed honestly. It didn't do what they claimed to do. Nowadays, that's not really the case. If you pay for an endpoint detection or response or EDR tool, you expect it to do at the very least behavior analytics or integrate with some sort of sensor system or incident response platform. But here's the thing. When you buy these tools for your organization, what the salespeople may forget to tell you is that you can't just plug and play, set it or forget it, like a rock, old Rocco commercial, okay? Like, you know, Rocco stayed on TV for you know many years when I was a kid. I used to love those commercials, by the way. You actually have to fine tune these products to make them effective. And they are great and they do work, but only if you put in the effort and time to optimize them for your environment. 
Well, Hector, that's where Cloud Solvers comes in. They have a dedicated team of senior engineers with deep knowledge on how to configure and deploy UEM platforms for maximum protection and compliance. Cloud Solvers offers a comprehensive, proactive endpoint management service that can protect your company from many types of attack, including insider errors and attacks. They have deep skills to make sure that your endpoints are continually managed and protected for both insider and outsider threats. For example, cloud solvers can ensure that USB ports are locked down, preventing an insider from copying and stealing your critical enterprise data or loading unapproved software or even malware. Nice, okay. Well look, cloud solvers is offering Hacker the Fed listeners a free assessment of their current environment. This is a great opportunity for anyone who's doing a penetration test of their core infrastructure or who wants to improve their endpoint security posture. Their senior architects will review your current environment and provide actionable advice to better reduce attack surfaces and harden your endpoints to internal and external threats. Contact Cloud Solvers today and let them optimize your UEM solutions to ensure that you are protected and compliant. Again, go to cloudsolvers.com and click on the contact us in the upper right corner. And from there, you want to write hacker in the Fed sent me to get a free assessment of your current environment. Again, guys, if you have a UEM solution, it may not be optimized for your business. Go to cloudsolvers.com, tell them hacker in the Fed sent you and get a free assessment of your current environment. Supporting our sponsors helps support hacker in the Fed. This episode of Hacker in the Fed, I welcome Greg Van Houten to Hacker in the Fed to talk to us. Greg is an attorney at Haynes and Boone's in their Washington, D.C. and New York offices and specializes in insurance recovery, recovering money for insurance companies when claims are denied, not paid in full, or when payment is delayed. He has significant experience with cyber insurance, and that's what we're going to talk about today. He is the author of the Policyholder Playbook, available at policyholderplaybook.com. Check out his website, guys, at policyholderplaybook.com. I'll put that in the description, guys. Greg earned a law degree from Georgetown University Law Center, but before pursuing his law degree, Greg was a member of Teach for America, and hopefully at the end we can get into a little of that, or Teach, America, Teach for America. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. One thing I just got to throw out at the beginning, you know, I, I'm not here to provide legal advice. Uh, you know, our, our, our firm's general counsel always has to uh, make sure that we, we throw in that uh, disclaimer. But I'm excited for what I'm sure will be a, a very rousing discussion today about the SEC's new cyber disclosure rules. Yeah, Hacker and the Fed listeners are, are very used to uh, listening to lawyers and the, this is not advice. This is uh, just a conversation. So thank you for adding that, Greg. I appreciate it. So, guys. Greg and I worked recently together. Um, Greg, Dave, who's a partner at Naxo, and I wrote an article about the SEC's new cybersecurity disclosure rules. Um, as we record this, it's going to be next week. Uh, but as you guys are listening to this, this happened on Monday, December 18th. Um, the new SEC security rules came into effect. Um, and what they are really kind of boils down to, and I'm sure Greg will do a much better job than I explaining it, is that companies must disclose on their annual uh, 
uh, 10K form, the information regarding their cybersecurity strategy, risk management, and governance practices, and public companies must disclose material cyber incidents within four business days of determining what an incident is material. So, Greg, some new changes coming out of the government regulatory bodies. Can you kind of maybe break it down a little bit better than that for, for the listeners? Yeah, I, I've got a few, Chris, and, and one uh, flows from what you just mentioned, that this four-day disclosure requirement after a material incident. That is a crazy fast timeline. Uh, and, and because of that crazy fast timeline, I think it's super important for companies to be conducting tabletop exercises, practiced real-time responses to simulate, simulated cyber crises um, so that they're ready to go. Uh, if and when uh, you know the unfortunate event arises, that there is a a material you know cyber event, given that time constraint, that four day window, and the need to message appropriately. I mean, we know that the words matter uh, and can affect investor uh, behavior. There's a critical need to practice uh, to ask what would we do with this type of breach? Uh, what would we do with this kind of cyber theft? How are all cyber incidents going to be elevated to management as soon as possible? Who needs to be called? The law firms, the IT forensic personnel like, like Naxo, crisis management experts, all of that needs to be lined up because if it's not, uh, how are you going to comply with that four-day uh, reporting requirement? So, so that's the first is that practice element. And the second, and, and this is for, for board members specifically and their, their cyber consultants, Cyber strategy, risk management, government governance, it, it has to be elevated to the board level if it's not already. Many boards are, are there already, uh, but all boards should consider adding a, a what we call a dashboard to their structure uh, that focuses on cyber. Uh, and although there's no requirement that a company disclose in its 10K the cyber experience of their board members, having a board member with that background, it, it's not a bad idea given how important uh, cyber management is uh, to, to the functioning of publicly traded companies under these, these new rules. Third, and lastly, corporate officers and board members, they, they have to consider and they, they have to be concerned about potential shareholder litigation that might follow the company's disclosure of material incident. We know how the plaintiff's bar, you know, the, the billboard attorneys operate uh, like hungry wolves uh, and companies have to be concerned in the same way they're concerned with significant M&A activity. It almost always uh, leads to shareholder litigation. And one way to cabin that risk is um, to ensure that the company's cybersecurity policies are aligned with what the company actually plans to do, both on the front end to prevent a cyber incident and on the back end to, to respond to one. That sounds simple, right? Having your corporate documents reflect what you're actually doing, but it, it doesn't always happen. And that consistency is important because one tried and true play in the plaintiff's bar playbook is to assert that you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And given how uh, rapidly evolving cyber threats are and the way that we handle those threats, it's very important that related governance documents are updated in real time, particularly because now they're going to be publicly available. They're going to be in the 10K, like you mentioned before, Chris. And so making sure that those documents aren't static, that they're evolving and living, um, and that they mesh and match what the company is actually going to do is super important so that you don't have a scenario where an attorney saying, hey, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And so now I have a viable lawsuit. So just three considerations right there, Chris. Yeah, no, those are three great points. But really, that first one kind of concerns me the most, Greg, because 
I know that the way it's written is that they have to companies have to tell within four days of an incident happening of a material incident happening. And in order to avoid that four day rule, they have to somehow have the attorney general of the United States sign off on them not doing it. Um, and I know the FBI just put out guidance this week and it's on the FBI's website right now uh, that it says that victim companies must contact the FBI directly through a dedicated email address that's coming soon. This is going live uh, on Monday, uh, and on Friday, the Friday before it goes active, it says the email address is coming soon. So I hope there isn't an incident on Monday that someone has to report, or I hope they update that website. So, um, you know, oh, it's a little concerning on my end that it's going to happen. Yeah. One thing I, I will flag about that, Chris, though, is um, one thing companies should, should, should be thinking about is although... There has to be a disclosure within four days. It is permissible to disclose known information initially and then amend later when, when more facts are understood. So it's not as if everything uh, that, that a company has to say about an incident needs to be disclosed on day four. Um, you know, take a close look at those rules, but but it is permissible to sort of supplement um, a, a, as time goes on. But you're right, especially with the holidays right here. It, it's it's kind of I don't want to say funny. It's concerning uh, that we don't have that email address yet. Yeah. Government regulations. What are you going to do? So but, but <laughs> I, the, I mean, another point that I'm kind of concerned with this and this this kind of four day rule and the craziness. Hector and I covered a story a few months ago on a ransomware attack in England. And in there was a rule over there that a company has to pay, you know, why amount to the regulators if there's an incident, if there's a breach. Well, this this chat log that came out between the company and the ransomware group, the ransomware group was like, we're only asking for a quarter of why. Um, and so we'll keep this, you know, you give us a million dollars and you don't have to pay the regulators $4 million. You know, we'll keep it quiet. You know, I, I don't believe them. They're a criminal organization, a criminal group. Um, so I don't know what, I, I don't think I would advise them to pay the, the lesser amount, but we see that bad guys are paying attention to regulatory bodies and using those rules against the company. So We'll see what happens with it and see what going forward. But it's a scary point of this whole thing. I think one concern that some companies had with the disclosure requirements in the 10K is, are we going to be handing cyber criminals a playbook as to as to what we're doing and what we're not doing? Uh, and, and, you know, before any government regulation is is fully executed, there's a, a notice and comment period where, where folks, you know, like yourself, Chris, get to provide comments to the SEC and tell them how their draft rules are, how they're good, how they're bad, how they should be improved. And, and my understanding is that during that notice and comment period, the SEC walked back a little bit of the specificity that needed to be provided in the 10K, which was critically important because do we really want to be telling cyber criminals the defenses we have in place and those that we don't and where we're where we are vulnerable and where we're not? Um, so it was good to see the SEC listen to the cyber experts in that regard. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're going to just run into to, to more issues because you're right. The criminals are paying attention, right? They are going to be reading these disclosures. I've been saying it for 20 years, and I love the U.S. legal system. I'm a, It's the best system out there in my, in my point of view. But every time I arrest someone, I have to tell them exactly how I caught them. I have to tell them in an affidavit, play by play, this is what we did, this is how you messed up, and the bad guys are reading that. They're understanding how to make themselves a little bit more secure based on reading, you know, legal affidavits of, of arrests, of arrest warrants. So 
I completely understand what, what you're saying there. And I've been fighting it for 20 years, but I don't I don't think there's any other way to change in it because I like the transparency in the system. Um, but we have to realize that the bad guys are learning from from these things that we're putting out there. So it is a concern. But what's the biggest considerations that we're facing from the, an insurance standpoint? Sure. And, and, and that's my area of expertise, right? Uh, recovering money from, from insurance companies. And when we're talking about cyber, we're uh, typically talking about cyber insurers and, and directors and officers insurers. And unfortunately, you know, despite the ads you might see on TV, uh, not every claim gets paid. Uh, and, and that's where, where we come in. So as for insurance considerations, I mean, it's, it's sort of easy to say companies should carefully review their policies to determine what may be covered and what might not be. But let's talk about some concrete considerations. First, with respect to cyber coverage, make sure your application for that cyber policy matches your 10K disclosures. Why do I say that? Because in the event in the event of a cybersecurity incident, insurers are going to review the policyholders' publicly available cybersecurity risk management, government practices and procedures, and they may deny coverage if the actual practices and procedures were inconsistent with what they disclosed in their application. Um, I say that because there's a standard exclusion in, in, in most liability policies like cyber policies that say says you are representing to us. Uh, that everything in your application is true, accurate, and not misleading. Well, what if after an event, the insurer takes the application, compares it against your 10K, and says, well, wait a second, these two things don't match up. You're giving your insurer a, a basis to deny your claim. So the same person who's working on your 10K disclosures needs to be involved in your cyber insurance application to make sure that those two documents are, are working together. Second, and this is particularly with respect to that four-day disclosure window that we were just talking about, I think companies need to consider bringing their cyber insurer under the tent with respect to the disclosure. Why do I say that? Because most liability policies forbid policyholders from admitting or assuming any liability or obligations without the insurer's prior written consent. So let me give you an example. I, I took a look at a Liberty Mutual cyber policy the other day. It says, and I quote, the insured may not incur any claim expenses, settle any claims, or otherwise admit or assume any liability or obligation without the insurer's prior written consent. What I'm worried about is that 8K disclosure that says, hey, here's what happened. And then the insurer says, well, wait a second, you didn't get our consent before saying that, and you admitted liability. Right. That would be a basis for denying a claim. And I know companies are going to hesitate to bring yet another actor into the tent in addition to the lawyers, the crisis response experts, the IT experts, et cetera. But you have to consider the insurer if you want to preserve your coverage and take away that potential defense. Uh, the third I'll raise, uh, and this is big in our space right now, are war exclusions. Um, war exclusions are top of mind for policyholder advocates right now, given the New Jersey Supreme Court has recently considered whether a hostile or warlike exclusion in a property insurance policy in, involve, uh, applies to a case involving insurance coverage for a 2017 Russian cyber attack. What the insurance company is saying is, well, this cyber attack that came from Russia, that was an act of war. And because we have an exclusion for anything that arises out of a warlike act in our policy, sorry, no coverage, right? And now war exclusions are not too common in cyber policies, and many have many that do have those exclusions have carvebacks for acts of cyber terrorism. But I reviewed a policy just the other day issued by CFC Underwriting, who specializes in insurance for you know, cyber and, and, and tech type uh, liabilities, and it included an exclusion for 
any claims arising directly or indirectly out of a war. So what you're allowing the insurer to do now is to say, if you tender them a claim for a cyber event, they're going to say, is this somehow associated with a state actor? And if it is, they're going to say, well, maybe that's an act of war. And so maybe you don't have coverage. And so that is a, an exclusion that brokers and risk managers, they need to be looking for. And, and one thing that I always love reminding uh, brokers, risk managers, and, and folks that deal with insurance at companies, insurance policies are negotiable. You can tell your insurer you know, upon renewal, hey, I don't like this exclusion. I want to remove it. Um, might it cost a little extra? I mean, it might. Um, but you need to ask yourself, do we want to pay that little extra to get the protection you know, that, that we need for our company? So, so th there's three insurance considerations uh, for folks to think about, Chris. So, so I know there's been a concern in the past about carriers pulling back on cyber coverage. Could you sort of exacerbate the, that tends or causes insurance to decline coverage to companies that they see or, or are more as more valuable? Yeah. Um, you, you know, you see folks sort of say things like the cyber market's getting tighter or the cyber market is people are all over both sides. I, I like to look at the data. AM Best, um, a market analyst, uh, reported that U.S. cyber premiums increased by by 50 percent in 2022, but through the first quarter of 2023 were, were relatively flat. Um, Fitch predicted pricing would moderate this year in response to recent insurer profits and, and competitive factors. They also reported that rapid uh, recent premium growth and a reduction in claims experience in 22 led to a strong recovery in, in, the cyber, uh, in the cyber market. And that's the thing that I want to focus on, this reduction in claims experience. Um, I think folks are worried that the new rules are going to make things more challenging, are going to increase premiums, um, are going to raise concerns on the underwriting side about increased claims uh, activity. Um, but I, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. And I say that because Fitch went on to remark in their, in their report that they, they believe that the decrease in reported cyber claims in, in 2022 was due in part to an elevated level of awareness of cyber risk at executive levels um, and more stringent enforcement of cyber hygiene standards by insurance companies and then also the, the companies they insure. And so if Fitch is crediting a reduction in claims experience to an elevated level of awareness of, of cyber risk at executive levels, and more stringent enforcement of cyber hygiene standards. Well, those are two things that are only going to get better under the new SEC rules, right? Because now the SEC is telling you, hey, boards, you have to be thinking about this because you have to report what you're doing to prevent uh, cyber uh, attacks in your annual 10K. So I, I don't see the rules causing carriers to pull back on cyber coverage, or I don't expect the market to get tighter. If anything, I think the rules will, will enhance the market um, in the same way that the, the the market was sort of enhanced over the last couple of years because of these elevated awareness, the elevated awareness of cyber risk at the executive level. So let me ask a little bit of a selfish question because uh, for myself, uh, my place in Naxo, uh, but also we have quite a few CISOs that listen to Hacker and the Fed. Um, can, can you just give for the, the audience that doesn't aware of it, like what is a director's and officer's liability policy? Yeah, sure. So a, a DNO policy offers liability coverage for board members, directors, officers, and sometimes employees 
to protect them from claims which may arise from decisions and actions taken as a part of their duties. Say the board decides to acquire a company, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the market reacts negatively to the purchase of that company and uh, the stock price drops. Well, shareholders might file shareholder litigation against the, the company and the board saying, hey, you breached your duties to us by purchasing this company and causing the stock price to drop. Uh, that's where directors and officers uh, insurance coverage uh, may come into play, um, both for those employees, directors, officers, board members, but also sometimes the company itself in certain limited respects, um, usually securities claims. And so how you could imagine a DNO policy coming in into play in the cyber arena is a shareholder alleging, hey, company, uh, director or officer, you screwed up. Uh, you should have taken better measures to prevent this cyber attack, uh, and you didn't. Uh, and therefore, I'm filing this shareholder action against you. Uh, in that case, uh, you know, you might hope that your DNO policy might be triggered and might cover the cost of defending against that lawsuit or, or um, might cover the cost of settling that lawsuit. Now, some DNO policies have uh, carve outs that say, hey, you know, to the extent that uh, a claim would be covered by your cyber policy, it's not going to be covered by this DNO policy. And so when you're thinking about cyber risks, it's really important to have your DNO policy and your cyber policy side by side and seeing how they interact with each other uh, and ensuring that there's no gaps in coverage. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking about that, it reminded me now that the SEC, how they're going after solar winds and the CISO for solar winds. Um, and so hopefully, well, I, I think that'll be kind of eye-opening when we see the outcome of that, that going on there. Um, but given everything we've talked about, what advice would you give to corporations for managing their cyber risks, you know, as well as insurance carriers for moving forward and reevaluating their approach to, to cyber coverage in light of the new SEC rules coming out? Well, I hope they've already been, uh, you know, seeking and fielding advice, <laughs> given that the rules, uh, you know, just came into effect. But uh, on the corporate side, if it hasn't happened already, gather the professionals and do it now. You know, most companies are already there, but, you know, a material data breach on Christmas Day will be subject to that four day disclosure rule. And so assemble your team. Uh, and I talked about that before with the tabletop exercises, it, you know, the, the law firms, the IT forensic personnel, public relations, ransom negotiators, all those people need to be integrated with your cyber task force, uh, conduct the tabletop exercises to practice what you'll actually do and how you'll react to a cyber event. Everyone, you know, it's ubiquitous by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. That rings especially true in, in this space. So that's the advice I would give corporations. Um, as far as insurers, you know, I don't I don't represent insurance companies, but but from their perspective, uh, I'm thinking about underwriting cyber and DNO risk in, in light of these new rules. Like I said before, I'm not I'm not sure much is going to change with respect to their approach. Um, underwriters will now have more data points to assess during underwriting. Right. They'll have the benefit of the company's 10K disclosures to you know, better understand the, the risk profile that they're underwriting. I would expect that insurers will be asking for those 10K disclosures when it comes time to policy renewal and, and when folks are applying for coverage. Companies need to be ready to hand that over. And, and if it's not on the checklist of materials that underwriters are asking for, uh, they ought to think about adding it. So Hector and I get, get a lot of questions about college programs and the right path of getting into cybersecurity. Um, some of these young people are worried about paying for college in the path. We mentioned at the beginning that you were part of uh, Teach for America. Can you kind of just give us the audience, uh, you know, what those options look like and, and how the program works? 
Yeah, sure. I was one of those kids uh, when junior, senior year of college rolled around. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had a, a friend who uh, joined Teach for America a year ahead of me, and she raved about it. Uh, and, and really what it is, is you it's a two-year commitment where you're um, helicoptering into a, to a school that is uh, struggling, needs help, needs folks to teach. You know, there's a national teacher shortage right now. And what Teach for America does, is it takes, um, you know, folks that it thinks can, can lead a classroom uh, and, and help out a school. And I did that for two years. I taught uh, high school physics and uh, I was the varsity baseball coach. Uh, and, and it was a heck of a time, you know, learning to think on your feet, you know, uh, command, uh, command a classroom. Um, it, it was just an incredible experience and uh, one that I'm in, incredibly grateful for having. And and then that, you know, uh, made me, I think, so much uh, uh, better prepared for, for what came next than, than a lot of my, my colleagues and my, my cohort, because I had that, that real world working experience, you know, to take to, my, to take to my next thing, which in my case was law school. And so do you need a teaching degree to be part of uh, Teach for America? No, uh, they what they do is before you get into the classroom, you, they give you a, a really uh, great sort of crash course on here's what you need to do uh, in order to be ready to teach. And then in most uh, jurisdictions where Teach for America operates, you, you then um, while you are teaching that first year, you're taking uh, classes that you can uh, use to toward a master's in education degree. So you're sort of doing it. You're you're walking and chewing gum at at the same time. That's great. That sounds like a great program, guys. If you you're looking to help pay for some school, that's a that's a great program. Greg, hey, we appreciate you coming on Hacker in the Fed and trying to explain some of these things that we're going to be facing uh, in 2024 with these new SEC regulations. Guys, if you are looking to to reach out to Greg and more, learn more information, go to policyholderplaybook.com. Again, it's policyholderplaybook.com, and I'll include that in the description on the podcast so you guys can uh, go and check out and see what Greg's got going on. So, Greg, really appreciate it, and thanks for the insight. All right, Hector. Well, I think that's it. Again, if people want to reach out to us, it's at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Guys, download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Hector, it's been a great conversation, and we will uh, talk again. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.